This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. As you're turning to Psalm 2, um, I want to let you know that we're beginning a new series uh, today that's going to take us through this Advent season. And uh, we're going to focus on, really, uh, this month, our vision. At UPBC, we, we lay our vision out as a church through four M's, uh, mission, message, ministry, and motivation. We walk through those M's in our uh, statement, in our um, new, new members class called Starting Point, which will be kicking up, Lord willing, in January. But we also, we try to incorporate those, those values in our preaching and teaching calendar. So this month, we're going to be thinking especially about that M that deals with our message, which is, God is... God speaks, God saves, and God sins. So each Sunday, Lord willing, we'll take up a passage that helps us to see and understand one of those elements. And so today I'm going to be focusing on that first one, God is, from Psalm 2. Next week, Lord willing, Dave Mitchell will help us to think about the nature of God's revelation to us in Scripture from Exodus 19 and 20, God speaks. Uh, Then on December 17th, Sam Webb will give attention to God's promise to save a people as it's set forth in the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7, God saves. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, I'll look at the connection between Jesus' incarnation, his coming, and our going, our being sent from John 20, 21, as we consider the reality that God sins. So God is, God speaks, God saves, and God sins. You'll notice that the message at UPBC that we've received and love so much and preach centers around God. We believe that all of life is from God and for God. Paul said, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. That's the worldview of the biblical authors. It all revolves around God. He's at the center of creation. He made the world and it belongs to him. And we see in Genesis a cosmic temple that God has laid forth to be worshipped. The whole world is his to be worshipped. And in the center of that temple, he placed man, his image. That image is to reflect him and glorify him. But man has rebelled against that creator. This world has been plunged into judgment and brokenness and darkness. But God is also the center of our redemption. He has promised to triumph through one who would roll back the curse and even turn back death itself to bring us back to him. That's the world that the psalmist understands. That's the world that Psalms 1 and 2 are describing. Those those chapters introduce these themes that we're we're gonna run across in the entire Psalter. So Psalms 1 and 2 act like an introduction to book one or really the entire Psalter, all of the Psalms. And you see those themes that they introduce run throughout. We would, many would argue that they were together originally one psalm, kind of one introductory psalm into the, the entire Psalter. You'll notice me going back and forth some between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 uh, this morning. Psalm 1 presents the blessed man who is clearly described as God's son in Psalm 2. The blessed man has obeyed the words of God, unlike the wicked who walks in the way of sinners. Psalm 2 gives us a better understanding of what awaits those that continue in their rebellion against God. 
God warns the wicked not to reject him, not to reject his anointed son, lest they perish under his terrible wrath. Instead, this is a call to be gathered into the congregation of the righteous as we trust in the righteous son. Look with me at Psalm 2, and we'll read it together. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Then the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us now to hear from your word. Lord, would you give us hearts to receive from you, eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, prepare us as we come to the table, the Lord's table here in just a few minutes. Come, we pray, we would come trusting in the righteousness that you've provided for us, the shelter from wrath that you have provided for us. Lord, would you draw many into the congregation of the righteous now? We ask that you would come. Glorify Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. This psalm breaks down into four sections. If you're looking at it, it kind of breaks down nicely in, your, in, our, in our English Bibles into these four kind of paragraphs. And there's one main point that I want to I want to kind of drive home that I think these sections are all working towards. Okay, so I want to summarize it like this: Take refuge in the Son. That's the point of Psalm two. Take refuge in the Son. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. You see it there in verse twelve in this King, Son, Messiah. Each section that we're going to see supports that 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 thrust. So if you're taking notes, here's how we'll go through those sections together. Number one, we're going to see that the world is in rebellion. The world is in rebellion. You see that in the first three verses. The world is in rebellion. Number two, God is. God is. Verses four to six. Number three, the king is coming. The king speaks in verses seven to nine. And then finally, number four, our main point, take refuge in the sun, verses 10 to 12. Now we begin this Advent season together centered on who God is, holy, mighty, just, righteous. 
and merciful to a world in rebellion. That world of rebellion is described in these first few verses of Psalm 2. So that's number one, the world is in rebellion. And the Bible tells us how to understand the world. Lucy didn't have that when she stepped out of the wardrobe into Narnia. If you're familiar with that, that story, she sees the beautiful trees, the snow, the nice fawn that takes her in for tea, all those wonderful things. But she would find out later that everything is wrong in Narnia, right? Everything is, is upside down. It's under the spell of evil. She would also find out that, that the one who made Narnia has come also to restore it. Psalm 2 tells us how to understand the world. Somebody has said there's an entire Christian worldview here in this psalm. And it begins with the doctrine of man. Who is man or anthropology? We see that here in verse 1. Essentially, we're in rebellion. We're rebellious, sinful creatures. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You might not realize that kind of the normal function sometimes of nations and peoples is actually raging against Almighty God, raging against the one who made us, laws that are passed, policies that are passed that would contradict God's morality, his, his established word. People just living their lives, raising their families, working at their jobs apart from submission to God and his word is a noisy assembly, raging. That's what raging is, against God. It's plotting against the one who made them. That could seem normal when you look out into the world. It can seem normal to us, and it can seem normal to those that are just carrying on their lives, that don't know or fear God. They don't know that every single breath they take is a rebellious act because they're living as though God doesn't exist. And then there are many who are actively, intentionally living in contradiction to God's word and his ways. Verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In contrast to Psalm 1, the nations are not living the life of the blessed man. You see it there in Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man who's, who's meditating and walking in the, the ways of the Lord, God's law, Torah. These wicked are meditating on vanity. The counsel that they take together, notice that there in um, Psalm 1, they're, they're, they're sitting in the, the council, taking counsel of sinners that matches the counsel of the wicked. The bonds that they want to break, the cords, the ropes that are holding them down. Friends, that's the, the promise, the regulations of, of the Lord, the law, the teaching. Verse Psalm 1 verse 2, this blessed man is delighting in the law of the Lord. That's the Torah, the teaching of God. To the wicked, the good purposes of God are chains. The commandments of God enslave. 
It's because they've thrown off all his authority and have decided to do what is right in their own eyes, to install themselves as the ruler of their lives. What a contrast from the blessed man of Psalm 1 that delights in the law of the Lord. His life is totally shaped by God and his word. He doesn't, look there at Psalm 1, he doesn't walk in the ways of the wicked or in, in those counsel, in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. That's a life shaped by God. That blessed man is referenced here in Psalm 2 as the Lord's anointed, capital A, anointed. We learn that in verse 6, he's also a king from David's line. That, that term anointed is the Hebrew word we translate as Messiah, Christ. The wicked kings and rulers plot against both Yahweh and his anointed one, his Messiah, his king, his son. We'll see in verse 7. Even here we see in seed form evidence of a plurality of persons in the Godhead, in the Trinity. Friends, this is the world that we live in. The world is full of people that think they know better than God. As one author put it, God has made us in his own image. And ever since we have been returning the favor by constantly remaking him in ours. It's true in David's day and it's true in ours. We live in a world that sees the Bible's morality, boundaries, vision for the good life. That's what Psalm 1 is really, a vision for how to live the good life with God, we see that as bondage. And so we've devised this world, our own vision for the good life. And that's whatever seems right in our own eyes. Saw a clip of a political leader recently describing the way he and his uh, male partner raised their adopted children. And he was trying to make the point that the way they're raising their family is just like everyone else. We make lunches, we watch movies together, we, we, we love each other. Who would be against that? What's wrong with, with that? And the crowd applauded. But friends, we need to know that underneath that kind of plea to our emotions, what's there is an undermining of what God has said about marriage, what God has said about human sexuality, what family is, what's permitted sexually and what isn't. Friends, we can, we can multiply examples of how those kind of things have become absolutely normal in the world that we live in. How normalized is abortion? How normalized is pornography? We just talk about it like we stumped our toe the other day. How, how normalized is divorce? And then friends, when we wake up ourselves every day, how normal is it for us to want to set the agenda for our lives? Us daily seeing God's ways and his word as a hindrance to our happiness, a burden. Friend, let me just ask you, how do you respond to the word of God? How do you respond to God's instruction? Is it, is it a delight for you or is it a hindrance? The world and the people in it are in rebellion against God. That's what Psalm 2 tells us. It also tells us that rebellion is foolish. It's futile. Verse 1, the kings and the rulers plot in vain. Their plans are like the chaff in Psalm 1 verse 4 that just blows away. That's what the wicked are like. 
Why is that? Well, that's the second thing we see in this passage. Number two, God is. God is. This psalm gives us heaven's perspective on man's rebellion. Heaven's perspective on human rebellion. Sometimes we lose this perspective, don't we? Because we're so inundated with the backward thinking of this world. We, we swim in the darkness so much that we begin to think that there's no real hope. This is really the way it is. We can be discouraged. We can get worn out. And listen, I have to remember as a pastor that when I come into this office over here on Monday, I, I don't have to deal with um, gender inclusion strategies or pronoun etiquette or LGBTQ awareness in our office. Uh, we don't have to deal with that. I have to remember that. So many of you do. Every day, it's in your face. This kind of rebellion that the world is, 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 is celebrating is in your face. Your jobs are at risk. Even, even you're, you're thinking, what does faithfulness look like in this situation? Friends, I just want to encourage you that it starts with this reality. Your day-to-day faithfulness in this world of rebellion starts with this understanding of heaven's perspective. You need to understand Psalm 2, verse 4. Heaven's perspective on the world's, world's rebellion. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The strategies, the, the plots, the, the rebellious ideologies of this world are laughable to Yahweh. He's not intimidated. He's not speechless about how to deal with this. Notice here in Psalm 2, he doesn't begin with an apologetic response. We, we should use apologetics when appropriate, when we have opportunity. That's not the way God handles it here. Or even so much of a, a listening ear, hearing, hearing out the rebellion He doesn't scramble to adjust his standards. He laughs. He sits on his throne in the heavens and scoffs at the scoffers. And he holds them in derision. He holds them in ridicule. Friend, your God is the God of Psalm 115, 3, who is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God is. He has no rival. He has no competition. He is not threatened. One author says it this way, for God's people, his laughter gives great comfort. God laughs to dispel our fears. God laughs to remind us no purpose of his can be thwarted. It's interesting when you you trace God's laughter throughout the scriptures, it's almost always at the wicked. He's laughing at those in rebellion against him. He's laughing at the wicked. And you can endure whatever this world throws at you because God and his purposes are immovable, invincible. Despite the rebellion of the world and the attempts to thwart his plans, his purposes will always come to pass. And think about in context. These Psalms are, are written in a context. Think about how David would have seen this to be true in his own life. He would have known people trying to take away the kingdom, rebelling against God's anointed king him, himself. He would have known that really, really well. He would have seen that in Saul who sought to kill him. You can go and read Psalm 52 and see the way that David is thinking through that scenario or how his own son Absalom 
tries to usurp the throne. Look at the, look down at Psalm 3, at the subscription there, the superscription of that psalm, the introduction, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So those, those, those real instances are, are here. We have types of what's happening in David's own life that's going to make its way ultimately to the greater, David's greater son. Both Saul and Absalom are like illustrations of what happens when you rebel against God's anointed king. They're both rejected by God. They both die these shameful deaths. But God's promises related to his anointed king stand. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If the first worldview lesson from Psalm 2 is that we see the doctrine of man, anthropology, the second lesson here teaches us something about our doctrine of God or our theology. Earthly kings uh, may rebel and strategize for power, but God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. I think that's a reference to the the temple that would be built on on the mountain by Solomon. It points to the, the, the promises that are going to be made to David's greater son in 2 Samuel 7 that we'll see in a couple of weeks. And friends, when Luke describes the way that that greater son, Jesus Christ, was persecuted by his enemies, he uses Psalm 2. Let me encourage you just to, to flip over in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. Keep a finger in, Acts two, or in, in Psalm 2. Flip over to Acts chapter 4. Just after some of the believers had been questioned by the religious authorities, they they gather together to pray, and they're praying for boldness in the midst of persecution. And this is how Luke records it there in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth in the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, that's how we know who wrote Psalm 2, the mouth of our father David, your servant said, by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, who is that? For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What's Luke saying in, in recording here in Acts 4? It's God's world, God has anointed his king and he has a plan that cannot be shaken. So when we're doing theology, let's remember that this is our God, beloved. This is our God. He is. He sits in the heavens and laughs at the schemes 
of men. Man's scheme is to destroy his anointed and through that destruction, he saves them. He laughs at the schemes of man and by his grace, he seeks to save us. No matter what you see happening in the world today, remember that God is and to continue to speak his word word with boldness. Now let's think about that king that has been set on the holy hill that speaks here in this next section. So number three, we see the king is coming. The king is coming. Luke has told us that David is the author of Psalm 2, Acts 4.25, and and David would know the promises that God had spoken to him through the prophet Nathan about his own offspring. You don't have to turn there, but just just hear 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. He shall build a house for my name, David's offspring, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So the first, the person who's speaking here in Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, in that first person singular, I will tell, he said to me, okay, this is in fact David speaking as his seed in the place of his anointed one, the promised descendant, the king from his line that would rule forever. And he would rule as a son. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. If you look at verses six and seven together, really they're, they're making up the center of the psalm. It's like a, like a chiasm, like an arrow. At the middle, the point of that arrow are these verses six and seven, which act like kind of an enthronement or a royal coronation of this king. I think that's the, the, the meaning behind that begotten language, the setting forward. There's a divine decree that's been announced. And I love the way that the author of Hebrews takes Psalm 2 and he puts it together with 2 Samuel 7 when he's unpacking the supremacy of Jesus. Both of those texts are pointing to Jesus, he says, especially as it relates to the angels. Hebrews 1.5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, 2 Samuel 7. So, so son is, is significant because it, it connects this king with Adam, who's described as the son of God in Genesis 5. It connects him with the people of Israel, who are often described as God's firstborn son. So the son is going to be like Adam, who represents man uh, who, who failed, and also like Israel, the nation that failed. He's going to succeed. He's going to be successful. He is the one that represents the many that would reign in God's image and take God's dominion into all the earth. That's That begotten is like he's being installed in this role. It's, it's describing the appointment of a king to the throne. And the king continues there in verse 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. So he's saying, Yahweh is saying this, ask of me, king, ask of me, son, and I will make the nations your heritage in the ends of the earth, your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. For if the nations are your inheritance, that makes you the king of the world. The nations are his inheritance. Yahweh speaks to the king and says, ask of me and I will give you the nations. This is your rightful dominion. All of them are yours as king. So beloved, this should inform the way that we think about missions. When we, when we, we pray and give toward missions and we, when we think about uh, those that are going off from our congregation or we're sending, seeking to send people from ours or, or people from all over the world that we're praying for, uh, it's not just hopeful well wishes that we give. There's a confident assurance that the nations belong to Jesus Christ. They are his. He has purchased them. All the nations, even the, these that are plotting against him, against the Lord and against his anointed, they will be his. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 tells us, it's by your blood you ransomed a people. You, you purchased them. They are yours from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So there's a, there's a, a confidence in the word of God that we want to pray for, for those that are, that are praying about and, and thinking about and already going into some of the darkest places to see these nations bow the knee to Jesus Christ, that they are his. This fulfills the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12. All the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring, this particular offspring, and he will possess the ends of the earth. What a, what a great promise to bank on in the dark days. To know that Jesus has purchased a people. But for those nations that persist in rebellion, for those nations that, that continue this assault on the throne, they will face his terrifying judgment. He will break them with a rod of iron and shatter all his enemies. That word rod, it's the same word translated as scepter in Genesis 49. That's what a king has, scepter. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We're gonna bow or be judged. Again, Numbers 24, I see him. Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Sounds a lot like Genesis 3, 15. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. This king that inherits the nations and possesses the ends of the earth will crush the head of his enemies, those who plot against him and those who plot against his father. Again, this is our worldview, not just anthropology and theology, but now Christology, the doctrine of Christ. He's the king of the universe. He's purchased a people for himself and he will judge all those that reject him. And on that day, there will be no hope for those that remain in their rebellion. 
Friends, we know what happens when a rod of iron meets a clay pot. What a gracious warning. We see that language used three times in the book of Revelation. John also gives us scenes like this one, Revelation 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, there's those kings again, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Psalm 110, verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, thank you for hanging in there on a long sermon. If you're not used to being in church, thank you for sitting and listening to this long sermon about the Bible. Here's what I want you to just t- to take away and understand. Our, our rebellion, we are, we are rebel, rebels against God, and we, we call that sin. The Bible calls that sin. And because God is holy and just and righteous, to sin against him is to incur his righteous judgment. We have done okay by our own standards. I can remember often as a non-Christian measuring myself that way, making myself feel better, that I wasn't as bad as some of the friends that I knew some of the things they had done, hadn't done that. But friends, that's not the way this world works. It's God's standards that we're called to meet. It's him being our God and us submitting to him in our whole life. And, And you know, if you're honest with yourself, you've not done that. I've not done that. We've fallen short of God's standard. We've turned our backs on him. And the wages of that sin is death. It's judgment. And you will stand before him. You will. And you will know at that moment, without a doubt, that you are guilty. No one will need to even tell you. The reason people live their lives apart from the fear of God is they don't know God. And they don't know his judgment. What will you do? That's what the last section of this passage is is there for, to give us the answer. I pray that you would listen. I pray that I would listen. We'd ask God's help. We would see the good news. Number four, take refuge in the sun. Take refuge in the sun. This last section is a merciful warning to the rebels of the earth. So verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers, of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kings, know that the path that you're on is leading to destruction. You're going to meet a true king one day and you'll be destroyed. Repent. Turn around from your way. Instead of rebelling and ignoring and trying to replace God, serve God. Bow your knee to him and do that fearfully and joyfully. That's not a contradiction. In scripture, the fear of God defines true love for God and joy in God. Nehemiah describes God's servants as those who delight to fear your name. We have to learn to put those things together, delighting in God and fearing in God, one in the same. 
Spurgeon said that, that believers adore and worship the living God with a joyful, tender fear, which both lays us low and lifts us very high. For never do we seem to be nearer to heaven's throne than when our spirit gives itself to worship him who it does not see, but in whose realized presence it trembles with sacred delight. This is the good life. This is the life of the blessed man in Psalm 1. He meditates on the law day and night. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water. But the only way to get there, that image of paradise, walking with God, like we see in the Garden of Eden, where God walked with man in the cool of the day, is to trust and take refuge in the true blessed man, the Son. Verse 12, kiss the Son. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So as we continue just to build our worldview from Psalm 2, anthropology, theology, Christology, now here's our soteriology. You're getting all the party words. Doctrine of salvation. The only refuge from the king is the king. The only shelter from the wrath of the lamb is the blood of the lamb. That's what we're gonna celebrate here in just a moment at the table celebrating the blood of the lamb, poured out for us, shielding us from God's wrath, bringing us to a right relationship with God. Notice this idea of blessedness, how it acts like bookends for Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 begins with the blessed man. Look there, Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the man. And notice how Psalm 2 ends with a call to take refuge in him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. It's the only way to truly be blessed. Blessedness isn't just a way to live. It's a person. Jesus Christ, the son of God, the second Adam, the better Israel, the true king, took the wrath upon himself to save the nations. He laid his life down for the, on the cross to purchase a people for himself. And all those that the father have given him will come to him. Would you come to him? He died and rose from the grave for your forgiveness that you would be accepted by the Father. Take refuge in the Son. That means put your faith in him. Believe in him. Lay down your rebellion. Turn from your rebellion and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Kiss the Son is a way of saying, paying homage to him as king. He's king. Paul says this of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Speaking of him, he says, he is God's son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Don't perish in the way. You see that there in verse 12? If you reject the son, you will perish in the way. What's that way? Psalm 1.1, the way of sinners. The way of sinners. no. Come into the congregation of the righteous, Psalm 1.5, who are made that way because of our trust in the righteous one. He came to save us, to show us this blessed life with God. Friends, there's no plan of man that's gonna prevail against God's plans. God is king and he has installed his king. God is righteous. Psalm 33.10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of peoples. 
The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. God is. We don't need to be afraid of anything this world threatens us with. We need to fear the Lord. We need to embrace the Son and have the peace that comes, that surpasses all understanding from knowing God through his son. That's the way Paul ends his, his letter to the Romans, Romans 16, 20. For the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Blessed are those who take refuge in the son. May we do that together. Let's, let's pray.